Welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. My name is Gareth, and with me today, as always, is Alan. Hello. And also, because this episode is a film spin-off episode, we also have Saul. Welcome, Saul. Hello. So we are going to talk about a film that we have all watched based on a sitcom that we watched in our series. Please, sir. Mm. So, Saul, we've already talked, uh, our listeners have heard us talk about the series, please, sir. Like, have you got any experience of, of the sitcom? Only the same as is usually the case with me, where I watched one or two episodes specifically to give the film context several years ago when I was going through every okay. Britcom movie I could find for some reason. So, no, really. My understanding of Please Sir was the joke was we're going to get a load of adults and put them in, you know, school uniforms and have them pretend to be kids. And when I got to the end of this film, is that actually the joke or did they just hire a load of 20-year-olds to play 16-year-olds? I don't think it's a a knowing irony. I think it's just they just hired actors who were too old. That's fascinating because I remember there was a show in the 90s, I think, or possibly the early noughties that was, it was like, we're going to get a load of 30 and 40-year-olds to play, like, junior school children, and that is the joke. That is the irony. They're, you know, they're doing... I think think you're looking for hidden depths here. I don't think I catch it all. It was so absurd to me when I first saw this, and you know, I've been in my early twenties, I guess, that I just thought, "Oh yeah, that's obviously a, a knowing, surreal <laughs> element to this show." And and watching it again, it, it was this slow realization of, "Oh, this isn't meta. This is just <laughs> no, it's not meta. Just bad. It's just <laughs> not well done." Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Alan, why don't you? Because we already talked about the series. Where? When was the film made in the sequence of the, the series? So the film was shot in 1971, which, in the context of the series, was after series three. Was that the final series? That's the final one with the original cast, right? They did three series of Pleaser with a particular set of school children, and that was essentially uh. the end. And then it kind of broke off into the. We followed the school kids. The next generation. Well, no, we followed the kids, and they go off into a different show called The Fen Street Gang, and that ran for a couple right. of series, oh, which was them, like, after school. And then we also stay with the school, and series four of Police uh, was the same teachers and everything, but then a different school kids, and it was really not good at all. Um, it was a... Yeah, it didn't, didn't come together in any way. But they did try and continue it. But yes, this film was made after series three, and so it's the original cast. But, but contextually, we have, for example, in this film, the teacher, Mr. Hedges, meets uh, Penny, uh, a young lady, and they sort of fall for each other. In the series, she is already his fiance, and they've been uh, together for quite a while. So this is supposed to be a kind of, oh, we're, we're jumping back in time to the school year. This is something that happened. Because in, in the context of the series, the school year is finished, and the, the children have moved on. Yeah, it doesn't quite hold up. Can I tell you something funny? When when uh, we first see Penny, she's driving a car and she gives one of the boys, Wesley, is hitchhiking. She gives him a lift. And I was like, oh, I know that actor. Where do I know her from? Oh, it's driving me mad. And I watched the whole film and I couldn't quite place where I'd seen her. And it was driving me so mad that I went and looked on IMDb. And it turns out, oh, she was in Police Sir that I watched two months ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. That's how memorable the character was. Can I ask a question about that? <laughs> Because when we when we first meet that character and she's in the car, I thought she was an air hostess on her way to the airport. Which she's no. wearing the, like, but but then next time we see her, she's working behind the bar in the pub. It's the sixties. It's the swinging sixties. Everyone dresses. <laughs> was hostess. that was that the fashion? People dress like air air stewards. 
No, so in in the TV series, she does work uh, at the. I think she just works at the airport rather than as an air hostess. She's like on the desk. Okay. And then I guess it's like a dad's pub, and she helps behind the bar bar or something. I don't know. I don't think it's ever properly explained. But uh, I think you say a dad owned the pub. Uh, all right. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, yeah, so the film actually got released in November 1971. The new series, uh, so Series 4 of Police Sir and Series 1 of The Fence Street Gang both started in September. So they were on TV at the time uh, when okay. when this film came out. So it wasn't like a sabbatical period for the, the TV series. They were just they were still cracking on independently. Yeah, well, this was filmed in the gap between series. So mm, then it, okay. they just churned it out and got it out. As soon as they could, I guess. Basically, Please Sir, as people knew it and liked it, had finished. And so this film was a bit of a capper on it. Uh, It did sort of limp on as a kind of zombie series for a while. Uh, But yeah, ultimately this is... This is a, a film after the series kind of vibe. What's the production company that make this then? Is it the same people who make the TV program or are they busy making a TV program? It was made, it was made, it was produced by LWT, so London Weekend Television. So right. yes, that is who made the, the series. Although in the credits they're listed as LWI Productions. So that's a something uh, like that's the, their film conglomerate or something. It's illegal right. for legal reasons. That's the production company. And the other producer named is Leslie Grade. Is that Lou Grade? Uh, it's Lou Grade's younger brother. Oh. So Lou Grade uh, was a, a, a sort of a theatre impresario who then moved into television and film and all sorts of things. But they started out as a theatrical agent dealing with yeah. actors and what whatnot. So Leslie Grade was Lou Grade's younger brother who was also in the business and is not a lord of the realm. So <laughs> obviously wasn't quite as successful. Uh, impresario minor. <laughs> Yes, exactly. He he had a stroke in the 60s, and so uh, he didn't ha- quite have as much of an active role in the company, and his son, mm. Michael Grade, took over. Yes. So uh, Lu- Leslie Grade is Michael Grade's dad. Okay. This is an interesting little bit of sort of history in this. I'm not quite sure how he got involved in this. Lou Grade and, and their people, they were part of ATV Associated Television, who were one of the ITV franchises. Yeah, one of the ITV regions, yeah. They, they ran London Television at weekends until LWT got the franchise in 1968. Oh, I didn't know so that. they got kind of kicked out for LWT, and then this Please Sir was one of LWT's first shows that kind of they, they did. So I'm not quite sure how that's all connected. I guess it's all just quite incestuous and production companies working on one thing or another. Mm-hmm. But it is, it's Leslie Gray, just his name. It's not a production company or anything like that. So I'm yeah. not quite sure exactly. Did he just put some money in? Was he more directly involved? I'm not sure. What about the the writers and the directors, the creatives behind this film? Is it the same people? It is. So Esmond and Larby, um, as we talked about in the in the mm. series, look, looking at the series, they they did write this as well. It is all new material. It's not kind of cobbled together from old stuff. That's very true. We have seen that, haven't we, with some mm. of these movies? It's just great. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is all new stuff, and also uh, directed by Mark Stewart, who directed the show. Mm-hmm. Um, which is slightly more unusual because directing for film is a very different beast to directing for studio-based mm-hmm. uh, work. Yeah, and as, as we talked about in uh, in our uh, look at the series, Mark Stewart, a bit of a tyrant, uh, was definitely a bit of an old-school <laughs> scream at everyone and tell mm. them what to do. I, that's the vibe you want on a on a school set thing where everyone's well that's it there was a lot of young actors who were a bit rambunctious so i think he had to (laughs) lay down the law a bit but i think i think it's actually quite common from what i've seen for british sitcom movies to retain a director from the show Mm. 
certainly Alpha Papa and things like that all all make use of mm-hmm. uh, people that are well known on British TV. Well, back in the old days, it was less common because your studio-based producer-director sits mm. in the booth and, and talks to the VT operator going, OK, go to camera one now, go to camera two now. Yeah, different format entirely, isn't it? And, and different medium, I guess, if you go into film yeah. stock. from. Yeah. Plus there was, I'm not quite sure of the details of this, but there was definitely a difference. Like, you had a TV like union card and a film union card. You couldn't necessarily work on film if you were right. part of of the TV union and vice versa. Like, I'm not quite sure the details of that. But I definitely remember reading something, they couldn't use the director because he he didn't have the right, right union affiliation or some such thing. So the film itself, you know, we're going to go through it, not scene by scene, but we'll work through it chronologically. But it is basically, please, sir, go on holiday, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, yeah, a little bit, yeah, yeah, but we sort of make a joke of that, but the whole point is, like, let's get them out of this small space that we have to be in, we have the facilities, yeah. we have the budget, let's do something more interesting with them, and this is completely, you know, justified contextually, I think I, it's yeah. perfectly valid. I think it's a School great trip. premise for a film, really, because, like you say, it's it's the biggest you can take this idea without breaking the world and making it something that it isn't yeah and it's completely organic you know a- any bigger than this and you have to get into like they become hostages in a siege <laughs> got alpha yeah. papa on the brain they've still got to be enclosed and under the care of the teachers otherwise it yeah. doesn't yeah. work but then that's the fen street gang isn't it <laughs> which i guess we said doesn't work yeah. so there you go that was the issue with the inbetweeners movie in part i yeah. think it really it really lacked for uh mr gilbert not being on holiday mm. with them for anyone listening, I'm going to give a very brief kind of overview of what the film is. Our usual gang of kids at the school who are the bad kids that nobody wants to deal with except for our bright-eyed, optimistic teacher. They go on a school trip two weeks at a camp out in the wilderness, you know, in the forest because they're inner-city kids. Let's get them out into the uh, into the woods. And they cause havoc there. Uh, so it's the same kind of chaos they cause at school, but in a slightly different context. I'll tell you what I particularly liked about this is that we have the first 20 minutes or so is just them at the school, establishing the plot, establishing mm-hmm. our characters. And then we go to the summer camp and a few teachers go with them, as you would expect, but they don't come up with a contrived excuse to have all the teachers there and the caretaker there. <laughs> Mr. You know Potter. what, though? I, I would have... I would have liked a contrived reason to take Mr. Potter along because I think he's by far the best thing in this. I mean, oh, that's he's just interesting, Blakey, isn't he? Really? I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. that's. But, oh, let, yeah. let's come back to that in a second. Let's let's start okay. at the beginning because I'll be interested. What I'm really interested in here, Sol, is you as not being particularly familiar with the series, how the characters come across to you, and what what you think works. Because what we get in the first ten minutes here is a really nice establishment of mm, setting and characters. characters which even as someone who has watched the whole series it doesn't feel like oh god we've got to get through this it feels yeah. like just good character stuff but to someone new it is establishing all our basic characters and we sort of get to see some of their home lives as well which is which is helps to establish their characters as well so mm. you know Dennis yeah. particularly we see the parents don't we it's character stuff that is very relevant to the storyline and moves it forward as well yeah. which i think goes a long mm-hmm. way you know a, a big scene is uh, uh, a load of the kids tricking Mr. Potter to to sign his form, saying he's allowed to go on on the uh, trip. Do you know what? That seems that seems great. And that's yeah, it's a I good really scene. I really like that scene. 
I think it's good because it moves things forward, and but it, it shows us how smart these kids are. They are the, the, the bottom class, they're the unruly class, they're the class that no one wants to teach. But they've got street smarts, you know, they, they dupe Potter into signing Dennis's uh, form so that he's allowed to go on the camp. You know, they say that, they say that they're studying handwriting. Oh, that's called phrenology, you know. Look at that. Oh, it's just uh, some thesis by this Russian doctor on handwriting. Reckons you can tell character from it. Oh, yes. Yes. Phrenology, that's called, you know. Blimey, he's right, Hell. Yeah. Do you reckon Uncle Norman's the person we're looking for? Oh, he is, he is. Oh, yes, he is. Yeah. Well, I'm not a dupe, you know. I've had dupe gut. Well, look, just write your name down. Yeah. Oh, but but I, I, I like it because it shows us that these boys are they're street smart. Yeah. The the very opening bit, uh, we see Mr. Hedges, played by John Alterton, and Pricey, uh, played by Richard Davis, and they're walking down the street and, and Hedges is going, oh, I'm another glorious day going to work. I'm going to inspire the kids. And Price yeah. is like, oh, I'm going to have a drink. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like just that 30 seconds is like, right, we've got yeah, these two characters. Who these are. The world weary yeah. one and the, and the optimistic one. It's, I just, I think it's really smooth, very mm. neat. And then the same, they're basically that with the kids. We see them coming out and, you know, we see Frankie with him being mothered by his, his mother and, you know, stuff like that. It's all very simple. Then we see when when they they sort of um, they kind of mug the lollipop man and take his lollipop and cross the road and it's just general unruliness. Look at these kids; they're unruly. They're, <laughs> they're a liability. But can I focus in on one specific thing? We yeah. see Frankie, who's like a, a you know a bit of a overgrown kid, and he's he's like miming machine gun in the traffic. Mm. I'm like like pretend machine gun. Yeah. That's a lost art, isn't it? Now I reckon. <laughs> So what is this, 1971? That's like 26 years after the war. Because that's what he's doing. He's being a Tommy. He's, he's shooting Nazis there in his head. Like, you don't see kids shooting machine guns, fake machine guns anymore. <laughs> Do you it's not? All, it's all gangster <laughs> rap handguns now, isn't it? <laughs> is that right? The lost art of fake machine gun in traffic is, I'm on it. <laughs> it's all fake stabbings with kids these days. <laughs> yeah, that's what yeah. tend to do. <laughs> I I like the I particularly like the bit where Peter Cleal, who plays Duffy, who is not the oldest of the actors, but looks about forty five, <laughs> and is supposed to be a sixteen year old, which I assume there this is a knowing kind of gag. But yeah, he's holding the lollipop sign, going, "Can't you see it says stop children? Because we're little children, ain't we? <laughs> we're tiny tots crossing the street." Yo, do what? Show us tiny tots crossing. It says here, much tiny tots. Yeah, this is mine. I mean, they must know what they're doing there, surely. Yeah. yeah, I think by the end of three series and making a film now, I think now it's starting to become a bit meta. So we, we talked about this in our show, Sol, but that the actor is like 27 or something. But yeah, he looks 40. <laughs> like, he looks yeah. like a rough <laughs> 27. Well, that, that, that's the extra layer on top of this, is that, you know, people just age differently back then. <laughs> Although, what's the deal with... Uh, was it Wesley? Mm. The uh, black kid in the class. Yeah. He, yeah. He's the one, maybe this is just me being completely racist and incapable of reading uh, ages appropriately, but he seemed like the one actor who was age appropriate You're in right, that actually. class. Well, he's, is he in the series, Alan? A couple of episodes, yeah, a couple of episodes. Okay. But but no, he is brought in to play a more significant role here, but that's Brinsley Ford, and he was about 19, something like that, so... Mm. so but, he was younger. That's what you do, right? When you hire, when you're playing fifteen, sixteen, you get a nineteen-year-old who looks a bit younger. Yeah. So that's what they've done. The problem is, and the rest of the cast don't. So he looks well, it, like a child, a baby. He, child. Yeah, he sticks out like a sore thumb because he's the only age-appropriate actor in the in the yeah. entire group. Mm. 
There, there is so much casual racism and misogyny in this, though. I'm sure oh, yes. that came up on on the, the series oh, yes. uh, as well. <laughs> but it was, yeah. Just, well, I yeah, think you know. I think the racism is quite interesting. So. I, I think it's heart's always in the right place. Yeah, I, I agree. A character I agree. Is there's a racist, there's a scene know? where a Muslim character who, in order to get get a little bit of a break on the journey, mm. they encourage him to go out on the side of the A65 and say his <laughs> prayers, and we and we get to see him doing that, which is basically a Muslim on a prayer mat doing his prayers for laughs. You know that is <laughs> it, and, and yes, that is not cool. However, I think that. The the non-white characters in this are treated respectfully by their peers. In that scene, don't all the kids on the bus then start going oh, 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 at him while he's doing <laughs> yeah, it? <that's> true. <laughs> <laughs> but but he loves yeah. it. <laughs> he's one of the gang. So, certainly, certainly Wesley though is is one of the gang, and the only point that race really comes up with him is because he is doing a funny prank on the teacher, making. Yeah. Like cock blocking him by uh, <laughs> making the woman think that he's racist. So you know yeah, that's yeah. that's self aware. Another example of racism in the film when we we talked about the the parents signing disclaimers. Yeah, and Frankie exactly, Abbott's yeah. mum doesn't want him to go because because he's he's a spoiled little boy and she doesn't want him to be without him for two weeks. And basically, he gets round it by saying, "Well, Wesley's going." And she's furious that this this little black boy gets to go on camp and her boy doesn't, and so therefore she signs the disclaimer. So, you know, fair play to Frankie, he's got round his mum, but he's got yeah. round his mum by exposing her racism. Yeah. <laughs> the, really, the point that comes across is these kids who have been brought up together and are just like a multicultural melting pot in London are all just get on and they have their differences mm. and that's fine. And the parents, the parents are don't. the bigoted ones. Yeah. Yeah. And which I find really interesting because these is, this is representing people who were born in the, you know, the 50s. And we would have the same opinion now of our parents who were born mm. at that age. Oh, they're the ones who are a bit out of date and they don't quite get it. You know? mm. And having watched Game On recently, I yeah. think I wouldn't be surprised if my, my son thought the same about me. Yeah, but perhaps more Pro- regards progression to is progressive. Um, it keeps yeah, homosexuality rather than race and, and that sort of mm. stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, and in twenty years it'll be trans stuff and all that kind of thing. We will seem out. It will seem totally outdated. Well, that that'll be old hat in twenty years, Alan. It'll be like AI rights in twenty years. We also have to address as well. I think that this was uh, set in London, uh, made it for for LWT uh, ultimately. So if we compare this to my parents who were growing up in the sixties as teenagers, like they didn't have a multicultural melting pot. They had ninety nine percent white population in their village of miners there was there was was that chinese family that ran the takeaway that was it yeah that's not a joke yeah when i was a kid there was one chinese kid in my class and he was the son of the guy who ran the chinese takeaway we do need to recognize that when we we think about because i live in brixton now and the older generation here have grown up alongside people of you know caribbean descent and all sorts of other things Mm. the caribbean influence in brixton is particularly strong and Mm. so there is this melting pot there is this idea that we've all come from different backgrounds and we've worked out a way to get on sometimes and and, you know that didn't come easily but people have lived through it people have kind of gone through all that and like my parents for example haven't so uh, i don't i don't find it surprising that we look at this now and go oh isn't that old-fashioned but actually mm, i know people like that i know people who say things like that i mean it is it's 50 years old as well so you know it's sort of yeah i think it's allowed to be old-fashioned to an extent it is old you know 
We've jumped we've jumped ahead a little bit, but while we while we're talking about the parents and the signing off of the forms, can we talk about the other one? So Dennis's parents. Now Dennis, you know, he's a bit stupid, but he's also very poor. That's that's his mm. defining characteristic. His family are very poor. And we see that during the series. We see that, you know, the other kids look after him and he's got holes in his clothes, all that sort of thing. Anyway, we get to see his parents because he takes his form home to be signed. His mum's signing it. And then his dad gets really angry because I signed the forms in this house. Incidentally, like, you know, he is not a nice man to live with, is he? Let's be honest. But he then takes the form, but he can't read. And we find he can't read. But he, he won't let Dennis go because he just doesn't trust the school. He doesn't trust authority. He doesn't trust anything. And Dennis is my son and I'll say what he can do. I think the whole time we see his mum and dad is, is a really tragic view into his life. <laughs> Honestly, I think it's, I think it's really dark. It's kind of played for laughs, but it's like sh- that that woman has got a miserable life. Yeah, this is like this scene directed by Ken Loach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if I dare jump to the end, we'll perhaps talk about this more detail later, but basically they get one over on him and he kind of goes off in a huff. But yeah. he goes off on a, in a huff, grabs his wife and drags her away. Like, yeah, she's going to... She's yeah. going to pay the price I've for written, that I'll jump ahead to my notes. I, I've jumped ahead. I've written, they've beaten him by humiliating him in front of his wife and child. He seems like the sort who would take that well. <laughs> yeah. What are the sort of defining personality traits of these kids like as, as we meet them in the show? Because I feel like that's probably more defined there. It, it, yeah, we see more of them in the show, so it gets a bit more defined. But they they are quite clear archetypes. You've got Duffy, who is the leader. He's he's in charge. Yeah. He's a real kind of, but he's a he's a kind of a force of moral good. You know, he always sort he of is. he makes yes. right. Yeah, he's a pain in the ass, but he's a good guy. He's a good man. Uh, we uh, and then we'll stick to the boys first. We have Frankie Abbott, who is just like a, a very childish and a fantasist. Malcolm McPhee plays Peter, who is the dandy. He's the one who's like well dressed and gets the ladies. I don't think you get that in this in this film, though. Yeah, I was going to say that. That's... I, I think he's really underserved. You might remember from when we talked about the series, he was my favourite. Firstly, didn't like that he had his hair cut. No, it mm. didn't do him any favours. But then secondly, it, we just he, he was barely in it. You know, he had, the, he had a few lines, but he wasn't showing his character. Well, if I may just slip into a tangent here, Malcolm McPhee at the time of filming this was doing a play. Ah. Uh... Ah. He had a very hard kind of cut-off time. He had to leave the set at a certain time to, to be back in London for the for a play. And so, yeah, he is a bit written down because he, he wasn't available to do all the scenes. They had to kind of work around him a little bit. Okay. Uh, also, he's wearing a wig because for the play he had his, his hair cut short. So it is well, if they're going to put a wig on him, why not have a proper good one? <laughs> <laughs> Also, I noticed uh, Gareth in the in the earlier scenes in the set in the classroom mm. in in the in the show they're all sat in very specific positions yeah. every day. Like, and yeah. in the film, Dennis and Peter have swapped places. I noticed that, um, too. and I noticed that, and it basically means that Peter is framed out uh, in the wide shots. And I think that's because they that meant they could work if if he had to leave suddenly they could work it with a, yeah. a body. That, uh, so the, and there's quite a few of the like those sort of just general chaos scenes where you don't really see him. Uh, he's not really there. Interesting. So uh, yeah, I think there's a bit of that going on. He's also probably the least kind of big character. Least big. Does that make any sense? But yeah. <laughs> all the others are very distinct. Like I think, and I think it's partly the way Malcolm McPhee plays it. I think it's just quite subtle characterization yeah, he's doing. That might be why he was my favourite. He was the least caricature. Yeah. Of, of the certainly of the boys. But to go back to the boys, then Dennis uh, is the—he's poor and he's—he's he's special needs, and uh, and it is very much specifically said in the series he is special education, whatever the phrases they use. I was. You don't have a go at Dunstable, sir. 
He's ESN. And, <laughs> and, and what do you understand ESN to mean? Same as you. He's educationally subnormal, isn't he? <laughs> He's a bit funny. He's not very smart. He's a bit simple. And really what we see in the series is how much the gang rally round to help him all the time and, and, and make him feel good about himself, help him. And he's, got, and he's poor as well and they all chip in to make Did sure he's got his Did you notice at the start when, when like he goes that. round to Eric's house? And first of all, Eric's house looked quite nice, nice wallpaper. And his mum sounded a bit posh, didn't she? His mum sounded a bit posh, but, but his mum was making egg and chips for Dennis, you know, as soon as he arrived because that felt like something she needs to do from time to time for him. Here, you only dinner, Dean. And now, Eric. Mum! Mum! Not now, Dean. I'm just doing dinners and making chips. Oh, neat! Yeah. So that is a, a kind of one of those things that in the show we really see and, and it's used as a way of showing that these kids are really good kids and they, they look after each other. They look after their own a little bit, even though mm. they feel like they're fighting against the world. It's interesting that dynamic really because i feel like the the obvious thing to do here is you have a character who's a kid who's you know a bit of a misfit maybe a bit bullied or maybe just doesn't fit in but then their arc is they come into their own and are accepted by the others that sort of seems like what most people would do with this and it is mm. it's oddly wholesome really and, mm. and friendly uh, in a way that feels quite modern how all the kids are actually quite nice to each other <laughs> yeah like they they'll they'll misbehave but only playing up for the teachers that really is the the general vibe of it they it's it's like oh look they're the crap kids they're the stupid kids and the unruly kids we put them all in mm. this class but actually when you get down to it and and this teacher comes in and is this like bright-eyed hopeful young teacher is going I'm going to I'm going to reach these kids and and make yeah. them something and he does and and he and they so they start to care about him and and the idea is that what we're really seeing there is that they they are just normal people. They're just misunderstood for one reason or another. Or they're just not academic and so they're not being served by the system. But they're really good at this or they're, they're, they're very emotionally intelligent or they're just very good, nice mm. people in, in some way. I think we have a slight slip here in the film occasionally when this happens, when they come into contact with people outside of their world. Because mm. we have them as the underdogs all the time. They are the class in school that everyone, mm. all the teachers are like, ugh, can't be bothered with them, ugh, disgusting. And so they're always the underdogs and they're proving themselves in some way. In the film, and we get it a couple of times in the series, but in the film, we see them basically interacting with other school kids yeah. who do not, not much wrong, really, <laughs> but they're just immediately like nasty to them and bullying mm. them because they're a bit posh. And it, and it, it, it loses that level of sympathy I, uh, somewhat. I, I agree. We saw this in the series where a kid from another class comes in and he's a bit posh and they all lay into him. And we definitely see that as they interact with the posh school. And yeah, it doesn't do them any favours as characters. They don't come out of that looking good. They pick fights. And then feel and, and then act very offended when people sort of hit back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, we've talked about the boys. Let's finish off going round the kids while, while we're at it. So, uh, yes, yeah, so we have Maureen. Which one's the one on the poster next to your face who's been <laughs> that's, very that's, sexualized? <laughs> that's Sharon. Let's come back to that. So Maureen... <laughs> okay. Maureen is the one who's a bit more straight-laced, she's very religious, but her main characteristic is that she really fancies the teacher, and so she... Yeah, you know what, I, I feel like the girls feel a lot more clearly defined in, in my memory of them. It's good, so there's only two of them. Yeah, but all the boys just kind of blurred into one for me, whereas the girls were, yeah, there's the, the one who fancies the teacher, and then there's the, the sexualized one. <laughs> 
Yeah. 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 So we have Maureen, who is, yeah, the, the slightly innocent one, uh, but she really fancies the teacher as her main thing. And then we have Sharon, who, uh, first of all, let's address, it's a different actor. Well, it's a different actor. So it's, it's interesting to me, as Sol's pointed out, she is the, literally the poster girl of this film. There's mm. a, there's a, the poster is her bending over, showing her pants. Yeah. But <laughs> this is not, it's not about sexualizing children, so get over that. But nevertheless, she's showing her pants on the poster. So if you're going to have the poster girl of the film, it's the only one who wasn't in the series. It's the only cast change. Why would you have her on the poster? Oh, it's because she's got her ass out. Yes, I see. Yeah. The actor who played her in the series was Penny Spencer. And um, basically, when they tried to, they said that we were going to do a film, they tried to get her in. She was, she just didn't do it. And, and, and in fact, when this, the Fen Street Gang, the series that was the continuation, she also didn't do that. She left it behind. She decided she didn't want to do any more. And frankly, the career didn't really pan out. She hasn't done much else. But Carol Hawkins, who's brought, she was brought in here to replace her in the film and then also took the role as the series continued after this as well. I mean, objectively, a better actor, frankly. And um, uh, she comes in and does a really good job. She just embodies the character in the same way. Uh, and you don't really notice any, any great difference. What I find interesting, yes, that poster, and, you know, if you want to have a look at the poster, Google it or something, but Google the poster for Please Sir, it is a very sexualized picture of a young woman, it's supposed to be Sharon, and it's a drawing, let's be clear, not a picture of her, but, yeah, with this tiny little skirt on and her pants are hanging out and all this, but there's nothing like that in the film. And it's not really in the series either, uh, to a large extent. Certainly not from the teacher. Uh, Mr. Hedges is very kind of, very teacherly to them. He never, he's never tempted by this young schoolgirl or anything like that. I think that's just how you marketed yeah. comedies in yeah. Britain in the 70s. That, you know, comedy and sex were interchangeable. Yeah. And, you know, it was all... Carry on film, Sol, that we've established you've never seen. Yeah, it's it's all like, um, you know, Steptoe and Son and stuff were, were similar when we, we watched those films. They, stripper. you know. Yeah, all of a sudden you've got a stripper as a, one of the main characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But aren't, but aren't the posters for that very similarly like, oh, look at this saucy mm. stripper? And mm. the men kind of, and it's, you know, like you say, it's a painting or a drawing of them. And I don't know, you just sold everything as a sex comedy. And yeah, you, you're right. It's probably, I don't know, carry on. And we talked about this a bit in the series as well, is this character, let's make it clear, in the in the series she's supposed to be 15 and 16 years old, uh, even though she's played by a 23-year-old. Um, but she is sexualized by the camera and on, and, <laughs> and, and occasionally by other characters. And it, when it's another 16-year-old boy going, oh, she's a bit all right, isn't it? Oh, cramp it. That's kind of all right, I guess. <laughs> but. Yeah. When it's a teacher, it's like, okay, that's not right. It's interesting what you say about the camera. There's a scene early on when we we sort of meet everybody in assembly. And as they leave assembly, it's very rowdy. And they all sort of running through the corridors. And, well, the the camera is at upskirt level, basically. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and the girls are wearing these very 1960s miniskirt mm-hmm. things. So, yeah, it, yeah, little things like that. But I think overall in the film, there isn't really much of all that at all. Because by this point in the character setup, Sharon has started going out with Duffy. Uh, and so they're together. And indeed, yeah. in the later series, they kind of all, they're, they're a proper couple and everything. And Duffy's the cock of the year, so no one's going to be messing about with his bird uh, and all that sort of stuff. So they kind of dispense with that. And the whole thing about that character, she is not a prodigious sort of sexually overactive 
kind of sex mm. pot, which is I think what they really want her to be on the posters. She is yeah. some she is a girl who is attractive and therefore gets a lot of attention and has to kind of really work hard to spurn it and she has to she has to be careful yeah. what she does because men want her and she has to she has to navigate well, that in her in life. In fairness to men, they live in a society that advertises films by showing you a fifteen year old <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean the the posts are very misleading. Frankly, it's, uh, if yeah, you're looking for some schoolgirl uh, pants, then you're not going to get them. There is a sexually predatory character in the film, though, isn't there? Yes, there is. Um, and this, so this is um, Patsy Rollins. Yeah, so Patsy Rollins is a, a new character. She's a new teacher was, on the set. See, I was going to ask. She's I was wondering if this film. was a holdover from the series. And and she's, you know, her characteristics are she's got the hots for John Alderton. And we've talked about this before, haven't we? About how it's the kind of Hattie Jakes style character, mm. where it's a you know a, a coded, unattractive woman. And I don't mm. think Patsy Rollins is particularly unattractive, but you know that's how she's coded. But we see it in that assembly in the opening scene. We're establishing the we're establishing the characters in this in, in this assembly. Everyone's singing "All Things Bright and Beautiful." Bernard Hedges is singing along, and Patsy Rollins next to him, like looking up to him, gazing adoringly, mm. like she's hanging off him, like like wax off a candle. A new character for the film, it's a whole kind of bit, and I think it doesn't quite work. It, it, mm. They set it up at the beginning, and then they have a payoff right at the very end, but it gets forgotten about in the middle because they're too busy dealing with him trying yeah. to uh, get off with the air hostess. Well, I, I wonder if there's like some deleted scenes or something, because it really feels like you, you're setting up scenes of her coming into his room at night in the, mm. in the you know, accommodation. It never and... quite happens, does it? Yeah, or she yeah, walks in on him when he's with the other woman and yeah. gets angry or something. I don't know. But yeah, but Patsy Rowlands, a nice addition. She's a bit of a sitcom, uh, sitcom yeah. legend. She's she's yeah, been really in just about everything. Face. She's. It was just after this actually. Her most sort of well-known roles in terms of regular roles. She was in Bless This House, which was right after this, nineteen seventy-one. Mm-hmm. It started, and then she was in The Squirrels, which we've talked about, Gareth. Yeah, we have. Uh, in the seventies as well, and she also was in Get Well Soon, which we we talked about a little bit. The uh, Galton Simpson in a sanatorium, uh, <laughs> classic sitcom. She's been in Carry On films as well. She was in yeah. one prior to this. Uh, previous credit: Carry On Henry. I mean, she's your classic character comedy actor, you know. Yeah, and pretty much every character on her IMDb is called something like Mildred. <laughs> or, you know, just kind of frumpy names. <laughs> Did you notice, by the way, in the classroom scenes, in which it's not the sets that uh, were used for the TV show, but they look very much the same. It's a mm. nice... Very kind of just crappy old school building. Yeah. But did you notice, Gareth, uh, there was some... On the blackboard behind the teacher in the school, there was a load of sort of graffiti. The kids had gone and written stuff mm. in chalk. I did, but I didn't inspect it. Go on, what did I miss? Well, one of them was like Hendrix Lives, because Jimi Hendrix had just died okay. quite recently, I suppose. But right. one of the other things that it says is, Hands off our milk! Ah, Margaret Thatcher, milk snatcher. Yeah. yeah. God, was that going on in the 70s? Oh, no, she, well, yeah, she was Education Secretary. Heath's government was 1970 uh, to 74. So, that explains So that. there you go, yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was, um, it was, apparently Peter Cleal wrote that up on the board, one of the actors, just as a little, <laughs> just his little bit of social satire. <laughs> so before we leave the school and go to camp, um, can we talk about, well, first of all, let's have a very brief conversation about uh, the headmaster. Did yeah. you notice there was a headmaster, Salt? Uh, yes. 
what, any thoughts? Yeah, he's very sort of stuffy, uh, wants to sort of be prim and proper, but you get the sense that he's actually a bit of a, an imbecile. Yeah, yeah, I think you pretty much got that there. He's quite yeah. ineffectual and just sort of does whatever he, anyone else tells him to because he just wants to not have to make a decision. That woman, who I assume is a teacher, is sort of running the show. Yeah, yeah. Joan Sanderson's yeah. the deputy head, and she, yeah. Deputy so in the head. series, she kind of, he she's sort of in charge, but because she's a woman, she can't be in charge. So he, <laughs> just, he just does as he's told. But in this, they take that a step further in the film by just writing him out. So Joan yeah. Sanderson goes to the camp. She is in charge at the camp, and mm. the headmaster's just not there. Was that the norm in the 70s? Because I, I feel now, while male head teachers are certainly not uncommon, I, I, feel like, I feel like the stereotypical head teacher nowadays would be a woman. I would be very interested to see some stats on that, but I, I am prepared to bet you probably that more primary school. The percentage, school. the percentage of female head teachers versus male is lower than the percentage of all teachers that are female. Oh, 100%, massively, yeah. And in the 70s, it would have, yeah. It's never, it's never, this is never actually spelled out in the series, but, you know, she's running the show, but, well, she can't be the head teacher, surely. This guy's doing that job. Look at this old guy. Look, he's, he's, he's bald. He's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> But that, but that's that's what I find interesting is that I I think nowadays you wouldn't bat an eyelid at a stuffy old woman like her being the head teacher character. You know, you just be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, the head teacher is the, my least favorite character in the series. I think he's a bit crap, and so I'm very really? happy that they basically bookend him and then don't him, have yeah. him in the in the film. I quite enjoyed his dynamic with uh, Blakey. What's he called? Potter. Potter. I liked I liked how Potter was fawning over him and preparing everything. Well, I'm much more surprised that Potter didn't make it to the camp. I know he does quite yeah, a lot, but Potter in the in the series, what you see in the film is pretty much you know what you get in the series. He's this he's this little ball of chaos that kind of runs around the school. And my thing with with Potter was that he didn't fit. It like it felt like he was from a different show, a oh, different tone of comedy. 100%. Yeah. And okay, maybe that works as a little comic relief character. I didn't particularly care for that. He's fine, but uh, I don't know. I, I, well, I wasn't interested in. So I'm quite happy that. He's See, I think I preferred him to everything else, and I yeah. wanted everything <laughs> okay. else to fall in line with him. But I do agree with what you're saying. I'm surprised they didn't, you know, get to the camp and there's a caretaker played by the same actor who's like his brother or something. Oh, that would have been great. (laughs) (laughs) I believe you know my brother. I am surprised that they didn't contrive a reason to have him there, honestly. But they don't. And I find that an interesting choice because you could... He, because in the yeah. series, he's always finagling his way to get onto the school trips and do things with them and stuff like that. He's always I kind of see him out of driving place. the bus or something, you know? Yes, exactly. Exactly, yeah. because we get a little bit of badinage with the bus driver, played by Jack yeah. Smithurst off of uh, mm-hmm. Love Thy Neighbour, but that doesn't really go well anyway. He just has a couple of lines. Can I give you my favourite Potter line from the film? Oh, go Gareth's discovered he can do a really good Potter impression. And he loves it. <laughs> he loves it. <laughs> I didn't say it was good. I said I was happy with it. It's different. <laughs> so as the bus leaves, uh, Frankie Abbott's mum's really upset because she's losing her little boy. And she says, they had to do away with my fallopians after I gave birth to my little Frankie, you know? And he says, oh, yes. Keep jumping on the pram, did they? <laughs> I just <laughs> I laugh out loud. Gareth, Gareth can't do the impression. His leading has to be, oh, yes. <laughs> can't do it without it. Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> 
anyway, yeah, let's let's make our way to camp. And so we have a bit of um, antics on the trip. The kids can't even have a two-hour bus ride without causing havoc. They manage to lose one of the kids, Wesley, who is picked up by Penny. What we get there, first of all, Wesley, we talked about Wesley briefly, uh, but Wesley is black, and that is, um, you know, uh, very clear in this scene because he, for attention or sympathy, I guess, he really ramps up the old racism uh, malarkey. Because, you know, uh, a black kid in, in the 70s probably didn't have enough race, real racist stuff to talk about, so has to make it up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, but, uh, okay, whatever. Did you get when, when Penny... When Penny- meets Bernard and she's really angry and saying he's disgusting. Did you get what she said? She said, Trevor Huddleston was right about people like you, you swine. Did you did you pick that? Did you know who yeah. Trevor Huddleston was? And no, of course we don't know who Trevor Huddleston is. <laughs> <laughs> he was a he was like an anti apart he was a he was a churchman. I don't know if he was a bishop or, or whatever but he was a churchman and he was an anti apartheid campaigner. So I think he was British but he'd worked in South Africa and he was one of the faces of that early anti apartheid campaign. Good guy. Are we, are we, on, are we on his side? Although, although um, <laughs> I, I kind of knew the name and I, I knew what I just told you. But I thought oh, I'll look him up and just, you know, if there's any other detail that I've missed. The detail that I didn't know was that a few years after this, just two short years after this, he was accused of uh, touching children. So uh, oh, was, his, his defence... Can I read you? you, This might not make the podcast, but I I like this. This is a direct quote. I have never done anything to harm a child. Neither do I consider it indecent to pat a child on the bottom or pinch him. The boys (laughs) are telling the truth, but the implications of indecency are completely absurd. So there you go. All he did was touch a couple of children. That's a pretty solid defence. Yes, I did it, but I didn't mean anything by it. (laughs) So it's up to you whether you want to leave that in. Cut out the whole Trevor Huddleston riff. I'll just leave the first bit and make me look like a <laughs> lover of paedophiles. Hey, do you know, um, uh, so the actor there playing Wesley is Brinsley Ford. I know that name. Is that the guy from Aswad? It is the guy from Aswad. I knew you I knew the, the name. Right I didn't know it was same. him when I was watching it. But I, when you said his name earlier, I thought, is that the same Brinsley? Okay. Yeah, yeah. The One of the blokes out of Aswad. Do you have any idea, Aswad, Sol? They're a band. A, a Don't reggae turn group. around. I thought, yeah. As you're going to see my heart breaking. I don't know any of the songs as far as I know. But, I think that uh, might be the only one I know. So they, they had two hits and like I listened to them and I like, oh yeah, I've heard this. So I bet you would have heard them. The other one is shine, shine like, shine a, star. like a star, shining so bright like the star that you are. It's a classic. Anyway, that's <laughs> so that's him when he was a teenager, like obviously before he got into the band. That, that whole bit where she thinks Hedges is a racist and she confronts him and then they meet again later in the pub and she kind of has a go at him there. And then it's immediately diffused. Where, where again, that feels like something yeah. that should be going on all the way and then is yeah. figured out at the end. Can you can you believe a pub was serving those children? <laughs> <laughs> you, only, you only challenge them if they look under 25. That's the problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All this camp stuff, you know, uh, under different circumstances, it's got all the ingredients of a good porno. Uh, (laughs) You've got adults playing, uh, teenagers. (laughs) They're all stuck together in camp. There's older people playing teachers. I mean, it's good stuff. Disciplinarianism. You know know our mummy's going to text us about that. (laughs) Well, kind of on that level, we have the camp scene set up. All the boys are in one hut, all the girls are in the other hut. But... I guess this is a pre-Animal House. Uh, we have no shenanigans of like trying to <laughs> no sneak over into the... The uh, only other... shenanigans that are even suggested right, is Patsy yeah. Rollins trying to sneak yeah. out to get to Hedges. 
Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 I did think, oh, they're setting up the kind of, like you say, the US college movie tropes here, and then it doesn't do anything with it, but yeah. And we have, a, we have another character established here, although, again, it doesn't really go anywhere, but it's Norman Bird as the camp warden. Mm-hmm. Who is there to be a kind of voice of authority? Of he's there the to camp. be Potter. Well, yeah. yeah, but they don't do he's anything with it. He's filling the same role as Potter, albeit he's not doing the same. Yeah, he's not as good. The character is not as good. He's the foolish face of officialdom. But Norman Bird, yeah, I mean, Norman Bird's a classic comedy actor. He was in Eadling comedies back in the day and all that. Loads of sitcom guest appearances. Do you recognise him, Gareth? Yeah, I do, but I, I was I was kind of waiting for you to reel something off there that I know him from, but I definitely do know him, yeah. The one thing I thought, I don't know if Gareth recognised him from that, he's in Wurzel Gummidge. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, I, I, I did watch that when I was little, but I was very... So I thought you might know him from that. But yeah, he's one of those people who's been in a bit of everything, yeah. A bit like Patsy Rowland, you know. Here's, here's another thing, just in terms of like plot and structure and stuff. We get quite a lot of stuff at the school. You know, it's quite a significant first act. And so we have less time at the camp to really mm. play things out. And yeah. they have this kind of half-hearted oh, we get stars for good behaviour and, oh, we're not getting many stars thing. But we don't have the obvious, okay, everyone has to come together because it's the final competition and we have to beat the posh school and, and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's a, all a bit kind of limp and half-hearted plotting. But it's every, it's every 80s teen, American kids film, like Ernest Goes to yeah. Camp, right? It's, it's the, the, the underdogs, <laughs> the, the scrappy like losers club come together and prove themselves. You want a big confrontation against the posh school at the end, yeah? Where where our our brave underdogs overcome, and and we don't really have that, but they do. But the, we kind of have that, but with no structure in the sense of they're doing a bit yeah. crap, and then then they go, oh, we we better be nice because the teachers put his neck on the line, so let's do something yeah. nice, and then they're nice yeah. for a bit. There's a lot of disparate elements here that kind of work as a whole, but yeah, a lot's going it on. Never feels like we're leading anywhere. It just sort of finishes. S- speaking of disparate yeah. elements, shall we talk about Nobler? <laughs> The kid who turns up an hour and ten minutes into the film and becomes a yeah. crucial part of the conclusion. Yeah, puts his arm around Maureen like he's like he's uh, he's claimed her, even though he's <laughs> seven, and he actually is seven. Yeah, he's not, this he's not yeah, actually is a seven. child playing a child. <laughs> yeah, but he but Dennis, they're out in the woods somewhere, and Dennis wanders about. He befriends a, an encampment of gypsies who are living in the woods or whatever they're doing. Uh, and then he befriends a young boy of, I don't know, what is he, 11, called Nobler. And so Nobler becomes friends with them. He's just accepted in the in the world. The, the teachers Even let him though, in the camp. So, yeah, they just take <laughs> him into whatever. their group and look after him. Even though, I think it's a very important point, he's a little shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's a rude little shit. And they're like, oh, he's cute, ain't he? But that, but that's that's how that's how the world sees them, Gareth. And so then they see him and they go, oh yeah, he's just a misunderstood little kid. He's one of us. He wants to fight us. And like even when he's he claims Maureen as his love, yeah. and Frankie Abbott is like, oh, that's my tart. You see, yeah. he's just like them. Yeah. Yeah. So he he tries to get off with Maureen. She kind of says, well, no, I'm too old for you. I'm 16. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, but he, on her behalf, enacts revenge upon the posh kids. Uh, hang on, what did um, Peter call them? Hang on, I wrote this down. Toffee-nosed red blazer gits, uh, as they, the posh kids are. <laughs> yeah. 
That is an accurate description. They, they want to get revenge on them for, for some uh, shenanigans, but they can't they because they'll get in trouble. And so Nobler takes it upon himself to do it on their behalf and steals some money and plants it in their, their changing yeah. rooms so that they end up getting blamed for it anyway. So it's all kind of pointless. But it, it gives us a chance to have our conclusion where Hedges trusts his kids when they say they didn't do this he believes them and they mm. therefore we have a mutual respect all round and that's kind of what mm-hmm. the whole core of the series is really them yeah. them occasionally having misunderstandings but ultimately learning to trust each other so hedges then goes to find the gypsy encampment to to accuse some gypsies of stealing <laughs> and uh, <laughs> did you did you did you like his phrase i'm looking for your sagamore you heard that word before sagamore no, no it's, it's I, I um hadn't. well it's it's doubly offensive because not only is it a, a bit of a slur but it's a, the wrong ethnic group the sagamore was like <laughs> a, i'm gonna say a red indian chief because that's what they would have said in 1971 whatever you want to call it now <laughs> but i think that's deliberately played for laughs like he's just so out of place he doesn't know yeah what, but he's trying isn't he he's trying to be respectful yeah. <laughs> that's our conclusion really they they kind of get the come up and then we and then we have a bit of a, a conclusion with dennis's parents and that whole bit we sort of talked about earlier i feel like the start of this film in the school is all fairly decent and then it kind of loses its way a bit when they actually get on the holiday when they actually get to the camp mm. um it just sort of starts to meander and and lose its way and and it's weird because that that's kind of the whole point of the film is they're going to camp but that's what i mean i think it's lacking a bit of structure it needs that kind of yeah oh and then we need to get we need to win the competition at the end and get the gold star kind of vibe you know i think it is yeah. a, just a little bit sketchy and you know again we how often do we encounter this people who are normally right for a 24 minute but we're approaching this. Intri- mm. I think we might be approaching this wrong. We're asking Sol, what do you think, having not seen the series? But that's actually <laughs> that's actually not the right approach because pretty much everyone who would have sat in the cinema to watch this would have seen the series. You reckon? I, I think a lot of these films go out of their way to attract a new audience as well as a audience familiar with the show. Certainly nowadays, that would be the approach. Generally. Well, yeah, but it's not nowadays. It's 1971, and there's two channels. I feel like it was more the approach in the old days because, you know, that's why they were just partly just remake stuff so you didn't have to be... and not set it in the same continuity as the show so you could go in fresh, surely. I think they've... I, I don't know. I think they've done a reasonably good job of setting up the characters here. But I would argue that it's probably less important than if it was a whole set of original characters who no one knew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I talk about one other thing that's totally tangential if we've finished with the film, mm-hmm. pretty much? I have here a copy of Please Sir, The Official History by David Barry, uh-huh. signed to me by his good hand. <laughs> we talked about this in the series. I used this as a, a pretty detailed reference for what we talk about. So I thought, oh, I'll read the bit about the film again. There's a little chapter about the film. Not a great deal of details other than what we've already talked about. But one of the things he mentions uh, during it is that after filming one day during all this time, they got chatted up by some sort of sleazy salesman guy who said, hey, look, I've, I've got some studio time. Come down, we'll record a Please Sir cast single and we'll release it, we'll all make a fortune. <laughs> and so they did that. It was during the filming of the film and they did it after filming, but then they also, Malcolm McPhee had to go and do his theatre show, so they didn't even start recording until, you know, 11 o'clock at night. They were there all night, they'd been up all day filming, they were all drunk uh, and sleepy <laughs> and pissed off, and so in these circumstances, they created uh, a song and recorded a single. 
And like the guy was a bit of a slick salesman and it was all a bit dodgy and I don't know what came of it. It certainly didn't sell that well. But there is a Please Sir Cast single. Wow. Do you want to hear it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Every type of bad singing on show there. That is poorly written, but made up for with even worse worse execution. To say it sounds like they cobbled the like wrote the thing within a, a couple of hours from the sounds of it could be a lot worse. I'm not sure who wrote it because uh, Malcolm McPhee is one of the credited writers. I, so I, I saw guess that on the, the on the YouTube page. I saw M- McPhee. I wondered if it was him. Yeah, and the B side, which is even worse, is credited to Peter Denyer as well. So um, that's uh, <laughs> oof. Uh, yeah. I have one more note here, which is a little bit of a tangent. We did talk about this when we talked about the series. Corporal punishment. There are a lot of clips around the ears. There's a slipper. It's just like, it's just really incongruous, isn't it? You know, just like, it's never nasty. It's just like a little, just all part of disciplining these kids. Just a little smack here Mm -hmm. and a belt around the ear there and a grab him by the ear and pull him out of assembly over there. Just, it's just normal. Do you know what? <laughs> Speaking of Bishop Huddleston earlier, that bit where he does, he just pats Malcolm McPhee on the bottom with a slipper. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely was like he threatens him he, with the slipper. You need, you need to hit him hard, or it's weird. <laughs> threatens him with a slipper, and then and Malcolm McPhee does as he's told anyway. So it's like a good lad, little tap on the bum with the slipper. Good lad. <laughs> that was that was when I made the porno note. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to read that again. I've never done anything to harm a child. It is not indecent to pat a child on the bottom or pinch him. So there, just corporal punishment. <laughs> okay, so I think we, we've we've dealt with the police uh, film spin-off there. Yes, the series carried on for a, a couple of years after, uh, in some sort of way. Uh, it was this was its height, really. This was its peak. Um, yeah. I, but I think uh, perhaps Gareth, you can speak to this as well. In terms of series to film transition, I think they do a pretty good job here. I think we get. We get all the ingredients, we get the same spirit, and we get... Considering there's no laugh track and there's no mm-hmm. audience here, I don't feel like yeah. it, it, it misses that. It feels like the rhythm is still good, the pace is good. You know what, that's a really good point. Yeah, I think that is a good point. I hadn't actually registered there was no laugh track, but, but I, yeah. that's the point. I hadn't and noticed. Normally it's glaringly obvious in these, in these things, even when they kind of work, but yeah... I enjoyed watching it. I, I, I like that Sol enjoyed watching it because I'm always curious how would it go if you didn't know the character, if you hadn't seen the series. But well, I, I do think my, my main criticism is it I, did miss Potter. I wouldn't say it was great. Let's put that. I did, I did miss Potter. <laughs> I think he's a big miss. I think he's a he is a little incongruous mm. in the world. I don't disagree with you about that, but he is part of the world. He is an integral part of the, the, yeah. the show. And yeah, we were just missing him for the whole second act. 
I should just make this fairly clear for you, Sol, in terms of when we looked at the series, we didn't come out of that going, oh yeah, that was a really good show. <laughs> it was, it's fairly yeah. crap. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a bit crap. Uh, but, you know, this, this, I think this film is a quite a good example of it at, yeah. its, at its best, mm. you know, all those characters working together. What I know of the show, it, it seemed like a good translation. I, I agree with you. And, and I think for what it is, it's not bad. I've seen much worse British sitcom movies than, than this. But I, yeah, I would shot, uh, stop short of saying it's good, even. <laughs> well, yeah, I think overall it works very nicely. A good transition and a nice send-off for, for our original cast, really. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think we have uh, wrung all the juice out of this film, so uh, thanks everyone for listening. This is the British Sitcom History Podcast. You can see us, you can find us on social media, we're on Twitter and Instagram, at BritComPod, or on Facebook, if you look at British Sitcom History Podcast, you'll find us. And you can go to our YouTube, search for British Sitcom History, you'll find us there, in which you can find the podcast with video accompaniments, some clips and things, but also some just purely video content that is up on the YouTube, including what we like to call Sitcom Spotlight, in which we look at actors and sort of see the sitcom appearances from their careers, just little highlight reels. And I have done one, which will be coming out soon, on the cast of Please Sir. The, the, oh. the Fen Street kids, actually, the kids from Fen Street, and their sitcom appearances. And what else And I sort of conglomerated them all, in, all into one. So that'll be going up on the YouTube fairly soon after you, this goes out. So uh, have a look at that. Thanks for joining us, Saul. It's been great to talk to you. It's all right. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Alan. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.